I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles, please, and go to Romans chapter 6 this morning. Romans chapter 6. Been working our way through uh, this wonderful passage of Scripture about what God has done for us in Christ. And in chapter 5, it was very clear, and actually all the way up to chapter 5, that the gospel, the good news, is that we can have a righteous standing before God on the basis of Christ's righteousness received by faith. And that's why it's good news. We don't have to work for it. We can't attain it by our own effort. We can receive it as a gift. And and because we stand before God as sinners guilty, we need an answer for our guilt. And God provided that answer in Jesus Christ. His obedience stands in the place of our disobedience and his death as the atonement covers the debt that we owe. The righteousness of Christ can be credited to our account on the basis of faith. We believe in Christ. So it's something that we receive, not that we achieve. But that led to Paul addressing some questions that might come out of that, which would be false conclusions. Well, if I can be right with God, and it has nothing to do with my obedience. And once I receive it, I am completely accepted by God. Does that mean that I should actually go on and sin? Because if if sin actually causes grace to abound, then why wouldn't I sin more so that grace abounds more? And if I've been freed from the law and I can actually live now Under grace, well, does that mean I'm free to do anything? Right? Those two questions Paul has sort of set before us, and he answers them with a resounding no. In fact, his words are, may it never be. May it never be. Right? The gospel should not lead to that. Those are wrong conclusions. And, and the part of the core of what he's been saying in Romans 6 is, is they're wrong conclusions because God has not only given us a new position in Christ. Right? I was condemned. Now I'm actually justified. That's my position or standing. I'm at, he, he actually declared me to be righteous when I wasn't righteous. It's a legal standing before God. He has not only given us a new position before God, he's actually made us new people if we're in Christ. He's actually done something to us that has not just changed our legal status, he's actually changed us. We are no longer, we are now dead to sin and alive to God. We have been freed from sin and have been made the slaves of righteousness. That's something that God has actually done to us if we're in Christ. That's what we are in Christ. I'm no longer the slave of sin. I'm no longer under its mastery. I actually am now the slave of righteousness. I am not dead. I am alive. So what Paul's trying to help us see 
is that while the doctrine, the truth of justification by grace through faith is the absolute bedrock on which we stand, we have no hope anywhere else. It is not all that God has done for us. God has actually done something which secures our sanctification, that we actually will be made holy, will be made righteous. And he's done that by the power of the gospel working within us. We've been in the second, last week we started the second half of chapter 6, which is verses 15 through 23 that covers that second question And the very center of this passage is actually found in the command in verse 19. Look at the end of verse 19. Paul says, So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. So so that's the center. Because of what we are in Christ, this is how we should live. Present your members, the parts of your body, the capabilities and capacities that you have, present them as slaves to righteousness. So here's the flow of 15 to 23. I'm trying to really sort of summarize what we talked about last week, then move forward. Right? Verses 15 to 18 are actually statements about what God has done for us. Verse 19 brings the command And then 20 through 23, go back to what God's done for us. I've used these words a few times through this uh, because we we talk about this in terms of trying to understand the the truth of it. Indicative imperative. Indicative is something we are. Imperative is something we're responsible to do. So 15 to 18 is indicative. Here's what you were but you became obedient from the heart to the form of teaching you received. This is what the believer is. 19 says, so present yourselves, your members, as slaves of righteousness. Then he comes back in 20 and he says, because here's what you are. Right? Look at the first word of verse 20. It's assuming you have the right translation, all right? Verse 20, probably most of them would. For when you were. Right? So verse 20 comes as an explanation of what he just commanded them to do. Present your members as slaves of righteousness for, and he goes back to, you were something. You are now something. Here's what it means to actually have come to experience the power of the gospel. Because the gospel doesn't just change our standing before God, it actually changes us. God did a work in those who've trusted in Christ that fundamentally changed them. So, Just before we start to unpack verses 20 and 23, just let me remind you why it's so important to think this way, right? Why is it so necessary to think indicative and imperative and indicative, right? Why should we always be thinking that way? Because the the first is because it guards us against legalism, right? If I pull the imperative out here and say, all right, present your members as slaves to righteousness, so that you will become alive. 
right? Or so that you will be this, then I've actually taught works righteousness. Here's what you must do to be a Christian. But that's not the way the gospel works. It's look what God did. So now you do. Right? The way Paul says in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who's at work in you to want and work for his good pleasure. That's God's preceding work, right, is the key. You reverse those and you're pursuing self-righteousness. You're actually pursuing a path of legal standing before God. I'm going to make myself righteous so God accepts me. And, and there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it is death. Right? That's not the way God operates because we can't, we can't achieve righteousness that makes us acceptable. We must receive it. And once we've received it, God calls on us to live it out. Right? But it's not just the guard against legalism. It actually is the ground of our obedience. Why should I be so motivated to present the members of my body as a slave of righteousness? Why, why should that matter to me? It's because of all that God's done for me. I mean, I, I, I remember what God did for me in Christ, and it stirs my heart to obey Him. It provides the motivation to do it. I don't do it somehow hoping I can please him and earn his favor. I do it because he's accepted me in Christ and has made me his child. And he's done it all by grace. So it actually is the ground on which obedience is built. And, and that's important for us. And I'm taking some time to unpack it because you may have noticed the the, the communion trays there, right? We're going to, uh, a little bit later in the service, come to the Lord's table. And you remember what Jesus said about the table? This do in remembrance of me. Right? Here's what he's saying. So think about those indicatives. Right? Remember that it's what I did for you that makes possible the Christian life. It's not what you do, right? This isn't about you earning righteousness, you fulfilling rituals that make you righteous. This is about remembering what I did. This is about remembering the work of Jesus Christ. It's remembering the grace of God. And that's what Paul does here, 15 to 18, indicative. Look at what God's done for you. So here's how you should respond to it, verse 19. And then he comes right back to, because look what God did for you, verses 20 through 23. Remember that. Remember that. Think about that. Dwell on that. And so that's the way we need to see what's going on here. In verses, let me read verses 20 through 23. And I just want to show you some things about the text before we, we dig in a little more deeply on it. Begin verse 20 of chapter 6. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, 
Having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. These verses, uh, 20 to 23, really, they, they sort of unfold by a series of contrasts. You can see them as we work through them. For when, and then that's matched in verse 20, but now, right? So when and then is one side of the equation, now is the other side of the equation. But also it contrasts sin versus God. Notice in verse 20, you are slaves of sin. Verse 22, enslaved to God. It actually contrasts shame and sanctification in verse 21, things of which you are now ashamed. And that's the benefit that was derived. Verse 22, he says the benefit resulting in sanctification. So you have, you have when and then versus now. You have sin versus God. You have shame versus sanctification. And then you have outcomes, death versus life. Right, And you actually, in verse 23, have the word wages in contrast to the word gift. Right? So all the way through, Paul is showing us contrast here to help us understand what God did for us right, and, and how that should affect and understand our thinking as we move forward. So, so the first part is, and I'm going to, I just... You know, this is the problem. I should like have changeable pulpits because I just went indicative, imperative, indicative, but just sort of wipe that one out right now, okay? Because this side of the pulpit is going to be the when and then, right? And over here is going to be the now because we really need to see these. And verses, verses 20 and 21 are the when and then, right? And we need to understand something. We need to remember something about the when and then in order to be motivated to present ourselves as, as slaves of righteousness. So verses 20 and 21, Paul says, essentially, remember where you were, right? Remember where you were. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed. This clearly is referring to pre-conversion, right? You were slaves of sin, and we know that because of verse 17. We saw last week, but just look at it. Verse 17 says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you were committed. So when he says in verse 20, you were slaves of sin, he's talking about pre-conversion. He's talking about the time before they became obedient to the, from the heart. All right, so outside of Christ, before they had come to believe in Jesus Christ, they're described as slaves of sin. And, and he's already unpacked a bunch of that. But he says something a little unusual at the end of verse 20. You notice it says, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Sort of an odd way to say it, but here's what he's saying is, you weren't under the rule of righteousness. 
right? Because he's been talking all along. There's two realms in which we can live. We can live under sin or we can live under righteousness. If you're a slave to sin, then you are free with regard to righteousness because it, it actually doesn't rule you. You're under this master. And he's, he's setting now the opposite contrast of what he said over here when he said, so you're no longer under sin, right? You're free to serve God. But before we came to Christ, we actually weren't free to serve God. We weren't free to live righteously because we were slaves of sin. I mean, the scriptures are clear about where we are before Christ. Chapter 3 and verse 10 says, there's none righteous, no, not one. Chapter 3, verse 23 says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, talks about us as being dead in trespasses and sins, living really under the authority of the prince of the power of the air, and we're living according to the course of this world, and we're by nature the children of wrath. Right? So we're dead and defiled and doomed, if you want to pile up some Ds on it. Right, that's the description outside of Christ. We're, we're, we're cut off from the life of God. We're captured by the evil ruler of this world, and we are headed to condemnation. We're already under the sentence. We're, by nature, the children of wrath. Because of that, because slaves of sin, we are not free to righteousness. Right? So, so any view of human life outside of Christ that sees humans as basically good with some problems, right? I mean, we're basically good, but we're just, you know, a little broken. Or we're basically good in the core, but something has happened outside of us, and that's why, that's why we react badly. If we can, if we can sort of figure out what caused the bad influence, we can correct the problem, and then they'll actually be good. Right? Or, or we're a cluster of needs that are stacked on top of each other. And if we'll actually get those needs met, then we'll actually be okay. Right? All of the world's ways of assessing human behavior and life are fundamentally flawed because they miss the fact that in our hearts, we love ourselves more than we love God. And if we live for anything other than God, it is sin. Because God's the only one that has the right to rule our lives and the only one worthy of our devotion. So if I live for anything other than God... I'm living in a way that's away from God and sinful. And that means living for myself is sinful. And we live in an era, right? We live in a time where people actually have fundamentally enshrined the commitment to live for yourself as the only way to be healthy. And effectively, they're offering death in the place of health. Because if you live for yourself, you're living away from God and therefore living in the path of sin. And you do that 
I did that. You did that if you know Christ. Because you're a, you, you've presented yourself to sin to be obedient to it, verse 16 says. We're its slaves of whomever or whatever we obey. We're the slaves of sin, free to righteousness. That is, we don't live under that realm. We're not there. Enslaved to sin willingly, that is by choice, right? And the benefit of that prior life, notice the language of verse 21, the fruit or benefit of that prior life was actually things of which you're now ashamed. Remember, he's writing to believers. And he says this, okay, remember something, right? Remember where you were. You were a slave to sin. And because of that, the things that were the fruit that came from that are actually things about which now you're ashamed. Right? That that your life lived in rebellion against God is actually something that you look back on with a sense of shame about. That I lived contrary to God's glory and against God's will. I know. I'd love, I'd love to unpack this a lot. And I, and I actually have been toying with them. Now I'm probably gonna, I just sort of like, I just threw the, threw the, uh, the anchor on the other side of the boat. So I'm gonna have to do it. But I, I'm gonna preach a series, Lord Wayne, sometimes in 23, walking through this theology of shame because our world has it completely twisted. Right? Our, our world is actually taking pride in things of which they should be shameful and trying to tell us that we should never feel any shame at all. all right? But, but look what the text says. There are things of which you are now ashamed. Right? There's a biblical reality of shame that isn't the pop psychology, how you feel about yourself kind of a thing, but an, a really an objective, an objective look at what is wrong and evil and not having any boast in it. Rather than being proud of our sin, it's a point of, of, of shame. Right? I wish I hadn't lived like that. I wish my response to God's kindness wouldn't have been with such utter selfishness. Right? There's, there's that sense of it that the Scriptures call us to. So all I really want to say from this text is, is that a life lived for sin is shameful, and when we reflect on it, we're ashamed of it. Because remember, he's talking to people over here. He says, remember when? Right? When you live like that, from over here, you have a sense of shame about that. Right, now think about this, because I want to make sure we're clear. Right? He's not saying that they should be controlled by it. He's not saying they should walk around feeling like they're some worthless scum of the earth because of the way they used to live. What he is saying, though, is don't lose, don't lose the reality that this was sin. This was against God. This is something about which the believer wants to have nothing to do. Right? 
And, and we need to recognize that because when we stand over here, if we look over there with fondness, oh man, I remember the days when I used to do X. That was so great. Does that motivate us to present ourselves as slaves of righteousness? No, that, that puts us back at the edge of the world going, mm, sure wish I could do that again. Right? Our heart disposition should be, these are the very things for which Christ died. Right? I mean, he came into the world to destroy sin, 1 John 3 says. And not just sin abstractly, my sin. Right? The things that I did which defied God are the reason why Christ died. How could I feel anything other than but a sense of shame about that? That I sinned against God in that way. Because honestly, unless I have a fullness of that, I don't have a fullness of the appreciation of how, fat, how wonderful it is that, that it was then. <laughs> it's something God took away. God dealt with it. Right? If I think it was a little thing for God to redeem me, then my heart will have little appreciation. Remember Jesus said, who loves who loves most? The one who's forgiven most or forgiven least? Right? So, so I can't live under the guilt of past sins because that guilt has been removed. We sang that this morning. Right? No guilt in life, no fear in death. Praise God! But that doesn't make me soft toward my sin. It doesn't make me treat it as if it's not an ugly, horrific thing. I should be grateful to God because of it. So he's reminding of them. We don't live under that shame, and it doesn't control us, but our present love for God can't help but feel the disappointment of having lived against him. Right? And, and still, right? I stand over here, Remember last week, there's still a fight going on. And unfortunately, because I'm still in that fight, there are times at which I sin against God even now. And it should break my heart. It should be something that stings in my conscience because Jesus died to set me free from that. How could I live in it? Right? Think about where you were, Paul says, Remember what God has rescued you from, being a slave to sin and therefore free from righteousness. And in fact, the fruit of all that was things about which now you're ashamed. Right? That, that, that's not the life that you really have as the heart. Then look at verse 21. The, he says, remember where you were headed. Right? The end of verse 21. For the outcome of those things is death. Right? The path of sin leads to death. That's part of the reason we are ashamed of that fruit. We were living for things that destroy, and now we see the folly of it. We, we actually, by God's grace, have had our eyes open, and we realize that while the world may be seeming like it has a blast, and, and there's lots of laughter and fun, it's an enslavement which is leading to death. Right? The outcome of it is death. 
And so we recognize that now, and it causes us to, to have a different perspective on things. The death here, I believe, is like he's been saying in these verses, is a spiritual death that leads to eternal death. The path of sin is away from God and away from life. So remember that. Okay, do you, do you, do you this morning, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, do you recognize that your life before Christ was, in fact, enslavement to sin, engaged in things about which we should be ashamed and was headed toward death? Okay, now, I want to say this carefully, all right, because there's probably, well, let me just ask, how many of you here uh, came to Christ before you were 12? Would you? Okay, so that's a lot of people, right? A lot of people. So, so here's part of the tension, okay? Some of you weren't like me, all right? I got saved at eight, and pre-eight, I was already bad news, all right? I mean, I don't say it in any kind of casual way, but I mean, I, I, I was a rambunctious child and headed to trouble, right? But I, obviously, I wasn't like a drug dealer. I wasn't, you know, doing all kinds of things. So, so even my sins would be what we tend to look at sort of like the lower shelf stuff. I mean, I, I'm not going to get into details, but I mean, like I was going to the public school and I got spanked by the vice principal in first grade and the principal in second grade. So, I mean, I was, I was making my way up the food chain. The police were probably not far down the road, right? So, but, but it's all low-level stuff. And so I could look back, you know, I look back pre-conversion. What was, you know, I wasn't like murdering anybody. I wasn't doing drugs. You know, I wasn't living a life of promiscuity. I mean... We like to hear those glorified, horrific sin and someone's rescued from it. And so we can have a tendency to think, well, like, yeah, I, mean, I was just a kid. Right? But, but what that's doing is actually reducing sin to a purely human dynamic. Right? Sin is, is actually this way. Right? So the two things I got spanked for had to do with cursing. Right? And James 3 talks about that in terms of God. How can you curse someone who's made in the likeness of God? Right? So, so me cussing a safety out as a little elementary school student was actually sinning against God. I was actually speaking about an image bearer in a way that was defying the image of God. It was a capital crime. It's not just like a kid thing. Right? So, so here's my point is, some of us who maybe came to Christ early might need to think about how bad sin really is. Because we might be inclined to think that we, you know, we were just like, our nose wasn't under the water and God pulled us out. Right? Yeah, if we'd have lived a little bit longer, we would have drowned. But, I mean, it wasn't that bad. And because of that, because of that, our hatred for sin, our disgust over what it represents, and our sense of shame about even our own rebellion against God might not be as strong as it should be. And hence, we sort of live a can potentially live a, 
a kind of like neutral life because we don't, we don't grasp how deeply we were sinking and how profoundly God loved us to give his son for little Dave Doran, who's, who's a punky kid. But had he died, would have bust hell wide open. And Christ rescued me. Christ redeemed me. He made me his. And I need to remember where I was and where I was headed as the ground on which I would say, boy, my life should be really different than that. Should be really different than that. All right, now look at verses 22 and 23. Because here's the other side. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. So here's, here's the second part of it. Remember also what God did. And I put it that way because of the language. Notice, the, if I could put it this way, sort of the negative way, having been freed from sin and the positive enslaved to God. Notice both of those are statements about something God has done. You were freed. You didn't free yourself. You were enslaved. You didn't offer yourself up. Right? This is talking about the, the work of God to grab you while you were lost and dead in your sin and freed you from it. But he doesn't move you to some neutral place. He actually picks you up, freed you from sin, and places you down as the slave of righteousness. Right? He, he actually made you his. We use language like that, right? Christ, you're not your own because you've been bought with a price. Right? You don't go, I'm a slave to sin. Now I'm sort of in the neutral world. Hopefully at some point I'll decide that I want to dedicate myself to God and be his servant. That's not the way it works. Right? You are a slave to sin. You've been freed. You've been moved out of that realm and you've been placed into another realm. In this text, it's been under grace, servant of righteousness, servant of obedience. Now the text is very clear about what it all leads to. Look, at it's enslaved to God. You're his. He has purchased you. He's made you his own. He did this for you. Okay, and and, and so basically, when we think about why we should present our members as, as slaves of righteousness, it's because of what God did for us. He actually made us his slave. So we should live like that. All right. And I want to, I want to, let's try and think how to illustrate this because, so, you know, one of the things that's a problem is if you use illustrations that people have no experience with, they, they might not be able to relate to it. So I'm going to try and paint it out, all right? Because I want you to do this is the reason I should, here's indicative, right? You have been freed from sin and enslaved to God. That's how I should think about myself, all right? But it's not, don't think like this. So think about this, think about this, think about this. Then you'll be able to present yourself. 
right? It's not me thinking in that regard that somehow moves me to that. It's actually the fact that I am this, right? I, it's a reality. It's not, it's not just a thought. It's a reality. I am a slave of God. That's why I can present myself as a slave. That's what I am. All right, so here's, here's the thing. I was trying to think, I was going to talk about, you know, I could think I can dunk a basketball and, and I actually can't dunk a basketball. Right, and our culture likes to say, well, just anything you, you know, I mean, I remember years ago, anything you can conceive and believe, you can achieve, right? So here's the thing. I can conceive of what it means to dunk a basketball, and if I believe it hard enough, I'll be able to do it. No. Look at this, right? Even, even in my peak fitness, right, this body doesn't get off the ground. Vertical leap, right? I was built to crash through things, not, not go over them, right? That's just, that's just the way it is. No amount of believing is going to change that. I cannot dunk a basketball if it's a regular hoop and I have no assistance, right? Just for those of you who are technical people. Not going to happen. So you can tell me all day long, Dunk a basketball, because you can think this way. It's not going to happen, right? So, so here's the deal. We have to actually realize that when we're told to present our members as slaves of righteousness, it's not just like, okay, I got I to gotta stop thinking about myself as a slave, start thinking myself a slave of sin, but start thinking myself as a slave of God. Then I'll be able to do this. That's not what's going on. Paul's actually saying, this is what you were. You're not that anymore. Right? You are not a slave of sin if you're in Christ. You are not under that master. It doesn't have dominion over you. You actually have been made a slave to God. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching. God has actually changed you. Right? He did something in you so that you actually can present yourself as a slave of righteousness. Right? It's, it's, not a, it's not a wish. It's not a hope. It's actually the living out of what is real and true. You are different if you're in Christ. All right, so here's, here's another way of looking at that, all right? I love golf. I love to play golf. All right, if I'm standing uh, on a golf course, I hit a horrible tee shot, and I've got 325 yards to get to the green. No amount of me thinking I can do it will enable me to do it. I can't hit a golf club 325 yards. I cannot do it. So I can, just like dunking that ball, I can tell you, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. Not going to happen. Right? Move it to 230 yards? I can do that. But probably more often than not, I can't. Move it to 180? 
I can do it much more frequently. Move it to 150, even more. Move it to 100, I'm pretty confident I can hit it. Right, because I am able to hit those shots. My confidence, I can hit them. That's why I have confidence that I can do it. Right, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about the fact God has made you able to do this. So you can do it. Right? When I say to you, present your members as slaves of righteousness, I'm not saying to you something, just think it, think it, think it. You can do it, think it, think it, think it. you can do it. Paul is saying, you're not a slave to sin. You've been enslaved to God. That's why you can do this. He's made you his slave. He changed you. You can do that. Now, are you going to do it perfectly? Do I miss the green from 100 yards? More than I wish. Right? But I can do it. I don't stand over that golf ball thinking, man, I have never hit a green in my life. I'm not sure I can do this. I'm thinking, I can hit this shot. I can hit this shot. I may mess up, right? But I can hit that shot. And you know, when I come into a battle with sin, right, I can't be going, well, I'm not sure if, I'm not sure if I can win this. <laughs> because that would be an exercise of unbelief. I actually should be going, all right, God has told me what he's done, and he has promised the grace for me to do what he wants me to do, I need to believe him. I need to believe him. So I remember what God did for me, and I remember what he will do. That's what verses, the end of verse 22 and verse 23 are talking about. Resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the outcome of what God has begun in you is not just sanctification, verse 22, but also promised life with him forever, eternal life. The path God has placed the believer on leads to life eternal. The payout of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. All right, so let me circle back to those contrasts, right? You have a contrast of state, when and then versus now. You have a contrast of fruit or benefit. This is shame. This is sanctification. You have a contrast of outcome, death or life. You have a contrast of basis. This is wages. This is a gift. And you have, a con you have a contrast of the ruler, slave of sin, enslaved to God. All right, that's what Paul tries to lay before us. And here's the thing that, I, 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 please hear me right on this. Verse 23 is a famous gospel verse, right? My guess is most of the time you've heard this verse quoted, it's in a gospel preaching evangelistic context. Hey, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and that is true and great, but where is this verse placed? 
It's actually placed at the end of a discussion of sanctification. That means this verse is for people who've trusted in Christ. Two. He's actually saying to believers. Right? You know why you can live out from under the rule of sin? You know why you can live for God? Because the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That God graciously has given us life. We can live because God gave us life. So it should be something that, that isn't just tucked in your Bible or in your brain for when you're talking to an unbeliever. Right? I encounter a lost person. I want them to see that salvation's a gift, and I pull this verse out, and I ought to. But you know when I also ought to pull this verse out? Is when I come to a point in my life where I'm actually being tempted to live for sin. And I remember, I remember where I was, a slave to sin. But I remember now where I am, I've been enslaved to God. And I remember what God did for me in rescuing me from that and and what he's done for me so that I can live now for him. And I remember that that path is a path of which I was, I am ashamed and leads to death. And turning toward him produces holiness and results in life. God's promised life, right? The gospel changes us, not just makes us witnesses. It enables us to walk and to live for him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the good news that we can be made right with you not on the basis of our righteousness, but on the basis of Christ. And Lord, all of this is found in Him, in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we rejoice in that. We, we want to confess that clearly. And Lord, help us this morning to be honest before You about where we stand. If anyone here has been clinging to sin and living for self, would you show them the dead-end nature of that? Bring them to Christ. Help them to see your grace in the gift of life and trust in Christ alone. And Lord, we who were enslaved to sin but have been freed from it, how can we do, how can we do anything other than offer our lives to you to live for your glory, to carry out your will and purposes because of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.